If you would please take out your copies of God's Word and turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. Last week we took a look at Jesus' genealogy and how we got to this point to where we are of the birth of Christ. And now we're going to see how it is that Christ came into this world. And some of the trials that took place in order to make that happen. So join with me, if you will, in Matthew chapter 1. We're going to be reading starting in verse 18. Now listen carefully, because this is God's word to you this morning. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together... She was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for his word. Let us now go to our God and ask his blessing on our text today. O Holy Spirit, I pray that you would fill our hearts and minds this morning as we look at this text that's in front of us. Help those who are hearing to hear well and be transformed. And I pray for those that are speaking that we would speak this word with truth and clarity. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This morning, as we look at this text, and as we'll look at the Isaiah text as well, We are struck by the tremendous control and providence of God and how he can move all these things to accomplish his will. I remember hearing a a story uh, from a Navy sailor who was aboard a, a large warship and served under a captain who was anything but a morning person, as he described. He was sitting there in the cafeteria one morning, and the way the ship was positioned, the sun was coming right through one of the portholes and directly into the captain's sleep-deprived eyes. So in order to find a solution for that, the sailor sees him pick up his radio, mumble something into it, and suddenly he feels the ship begin to move underneath his feet. And soon the sun began to move into a position where he was out of the captain's eyes. The sailor had said that this was the laziest thing he had ever seen in his time at the Navy. A captain adjusting this mighty battleship's course just to get the sun out of his eyes. This is a marvelous demonstration of control and would that we all had it. 
But here, as we look into this passage, we're going to see that God controls something way more than a small warship. And the Lord doesn't do it for selfish purposes, but does it for the good of that same world. That's what we're going to see in this as we look at the doctrine of providence today. Now, this is a word that we don't usually throw around in context outside of church. So what do I mean by the term providence? Well, providence is God's way of guiding all things so that they turn out exactly as he wants them to be. And it works every single time. This providence, this guiding of all things, shows itself in national moves of historical importance, but also in local and personal moments, both of which we're going to see in our text today. If you're following along in your outline, we're going to see our two points, which are exactly that. And God's providence rules nations for his personal ends, and God's providence rules individuals for his personal ends both of which we're going to see today. So let's take a look at our first point, that God's providence rules nations for his personal ends. If you remember from last time, Matthew, who is the author of our gospel we're reading today, is a Jew who is writing to Jews. He wants to show them that this Jesus truly is the Messiah that was prophesied to come. So he will oftentimes quote from the Old Testament to say, see, see, this is the one we were expecting from the Old Testament, and here he is today. And right now, as he is quoting more at the end of our passage, he's quoting from Isaiah chapter 7, which we read earlier. And he's pointing to this specific passage that says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, if you were there in our Sunday school class this morning, you heard R.C. Sproul talk about the three most important things to remember when interpreting a biblical passage. And that was, one, context. Number two was context. And number three was context. The surrounding passages around this verse. We oftentimes quote this one verse from Isaiah But there's a lot more that's going on around this passage. And it's actually rather interesting, if you'll turn with me back to Isaiah chapter 7, that we have a chance to look and see what context this prophecy was originally made. As I alluded to earlier, here King Ahaz, who's the king of Judah, is going through a tremendous national crisis. If you remember your Israeli history, at one point, Israel and Judah were one and the same, a united country of 12 tribes together. But unfortunately, due to the foolish acts of Solomon's son, which were under God's providence too, by the way, the nation split into two, and we see them now as Israel and Judah. And there is another country, a loosely brought together confederation of tribes, Syria, that shares a border with Israel. At this point, Israel and Syria are afraid of this new empire that's come up and is just punching its way all across the Middle East. And Israel and Syria want Judah to join them so they could have a united force against this new empire. But Israel and Syria have been sinning against God for centuries at this point. 
Judah wants no part of it. So Israel and Syria are trying to force Judah's hand by invading them first, to force them into an alliance to come. And they've already tried once and it failed, but they're gearing up again. Surely they've learned from the mistakes of the first time, and here they are again. To put this into modern context, imagine our own country splitting across, I don't know, north and south, if you can imagine that. Imagine our country had been split and, the, and Canada and the north were trying to invade the southern half of the United States to help us defend off a distant foreign power. This is a crisis that this king Ahaz is undergoing. But here, God speaks through his prophet Isaiah and speaks a word of comfort to him. He is saying, you don't have to worry about Syria and Israel. You don't even have to go with your original plan, which was to go try and see if you could give some money to this other empire that maybe they'd leave you alone. But instead, God is going to protect you. A word of comfort. And this is a rather large promise. So God wants to confirm to Ahaz that he's going to do what he says. So he says, Ahaz, ask me to do something. Anything that you want, high as heaven, as deep as the grave, and I'll fulfill it for you to show that this is really going to happen. Well, Ahaz refuses. Can you imagine being given the opportunity to ask God a sign of anything to help you make a crucial decision in your life? God, turn the sky green and I'll go with option one. Who would resist that? Someone who doesn't want to listen to what God has to say. As we'll find out in uh, another passage, Ahaz eventually tries to pay off the other empire. And this ends up biting them later. Doesn't want to trust God. But he tries to pass it off with some sort of pious excuse. Like, well, I don't want to, don't want to tempt God, so I'll not do that. So God has given him this invitation. It's not a temptation. It's not a sin to ask for a sign in this context. So... The Lord decides to give him a sign anyway. And that's what we see there in verse 14. That a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now there have been those that have, there's been controversies over the years as to whether virgin really means virgin. Maybe uh, God is just saying that a young woman shall conceive. I like what... um, Ray Ortland in one of his commentaries on this verse says that if God was going to offer him a sign higher than heaven and as deep as the grave, saying that a young woman shall conceive is hardly impressive. That it has to be that this is a virgin that is going to conceive and to bring a son. Now, as we know, this isn't fulfilled for another 700 years. Why is God bringing up a sign now? That's not going to happen for another 700 years to be a comfort to Ahaz today. Well, one of my uh, seminary professors, he put it this way in his Old Testament theology. He says, trusting in God's word will bring the remnant through the current crisis, but waiting for the Davidic king will sustain them in the future. In other words, what he's saying here is God has promised to protect them. That's the word for that moment, to trust them. But here, this other promise that there is going to be one who will be conceived, 
who's going to be God with us, who in chapter 9 is going to have the governments upon his shoulders. That's going to carry them through when this crisis is over. Can we relate to that? A time of national crisis when there is nothing but bad news on the TV. We could use some good news too, couldn't we? We have promises that God will never leave us or forsake us. That Christ will be with us to the ends of the earth until the end of the age. And this promise that we have seen here in Isaiah 7 has been fulfilled in the birth of Christ, as we'll see in Matthew in just a moment. But there's another aspect to this prophecy. That word Emmanuel, God with us, as Matthew explains to us. This was fulfilled mostly in the arrival of Jesus. It was God with us in human flesh. But he returned to heaven. While he's with us, certainly in spirit, in flesh, he's not. So far. But we have a promise still to look forward to when God is Emmanuel for all eternity. When Christ returns to earth and all the governments are upon his shoulders and he is the ruler of everything physically. That time is still coming. And that's the promise that we continue to look forward to in these times of crises. Your eyes will see it if you're in Christ. This is reality. And we tend to forget that. We think about times in the future. It's like, well, when I retire or when my kids move out or when such and such happens. And we look to those times and it gives us a little boost because we know we're going to see it. Maybe. We don't have an assurance of anything of seeing in this life. But the assurance that we do have is that Christ will come again. Your eyes will see that when all things are made right. So this passage, though we have 2,700 years away from this context, but we can understand where King Ahaz is. We can feel that. National crises when things are falling apart. But we have the same promise and should derive the same comfort. This moving of nations is something that should bring us a tremendous amount of trust in God. If you looked through the rest of the Old Testament as we were to go through, you would see God is raising up empires to work out his will. Here, this invading army that was coming, this is the Assyrian Empire, God is raising up this empire to make a point. That's a tremendous amount of control. And he's using that and this, this army to eventually to punish Israel for all of its unfaithfulness to God. And then God's going to do that three more times. God raises up four separate empires to do his will. The Syrians were first. After them came the Babylonian Empire to bring out the rest of the Jewish people out of their homeland for their disobedience. Then God raises up the Persian army to conquer the Babylonians and put the Jews back in place. And then he raises up the Roman Empire to conquer most of the known world, put out a road system that's still in use today so that the gospel could go out perfectly. All of this is under God's control, and it still happens today. God is in control of China. 
God is in control of Europe, and God is in control of America. All of these nations, he sovereignly moves to his purposes. We've seen it all throughout the scriptures, and God doesn't change. It's still the same today. All of that to bring Christmas. Really gives a different sense to Christmas, doesn't it? It's not just hot chocolate and trees and lights. This is a war cry of victory. This is a statement that the world is under control of our God. That's why we can sing joy to the world, because the world is in his hands. He's the one who's controlling it. When we set up trees and sing Christmas carols, this is a song, a a shout of triumph. Because God has brought us to this point. And it's going to continue to bring us all the way to the end. All of this in these national moments. But now what about the individual? Sometimes we can tend to think about God being in control of these giant countries as being giant levers that he can move around. It seems almost in some ways less impressive. What about the millions of little details that it takes to move an empire like that? What about personal, local concerns where we actually live? Well, that's what we see here in Matthew chapter 1. That's what we're going to see in our next point. That God's providence rules individuals for his personal ends. Here, we are told the story, verse 18, of the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. And what we see here is the story of Joseph. We really don't get a whole lot about Joseph in our text. He is a relatively minor character that really doesn't say anything. But here in this moment, we get to learn a lot about Joseph. Joseph would have been following the customs of marriage just like any other Jewish young man at this time. He would have been considered a man at 13 and would have begun the process of becoming financially stable, would have taken several years to do so, probably picking up where his father left off in his business, which, as we know, is carpentry. Here he is likely 18 to 20 at this point, finally become financially stable enough to marry his betrothed. He would have likely known her for many years. This would have been a prearranged marriage by the two families. And here he is looking forward to being Mary's husband fully. This betrothal period lasted about a year. And the couple were considered husband and wife. And they had all the privileges of marriage except living under the same house or the same roof and physical intimacy. That was saved until after the marriage ceremony in which their marriage would be consummated. It was very important in that culture that these two were never left alone because any sort of sexual sin was very scandalous at this time. And all efforts were made in order to keep this from happening. So here's Joseph. The day is coming soon. He's invested significant financial assets to pay the bride price, to take his beloved, and she shows up and she's pregnant. Now we all know why. But Joseph doesn't. 
And you can imagine for sure that Mary would have told him what she had seen, that an angel had come and told her that she was going to bear the Messiah, that this was going to be of the Holy Spirit. But how do you think that news sounded? Oh, sure, a fulfillment of a 700-year-old prophecy is going to be fulfilled by a teenage girl from a village of 400 people. Sure, a likely story. And Joseph is obviously a kind man. But he couldn't be expected to believe something like that. And unfortunately, as one commentator, his name is Craig Keener, he points out that Joseph is actually in an even bigger bind than we think. He comments in saying that Joseph had no option of giving Mary a second chance, even if he wanted to. Jewish, Greek, and Roman law all demanded that a man divorce his wife if she were guilty of adultery. And he goes on to further point out that if Joseph doesn't do that, that he is going to be looked on with shame, that he would marry someone who is not, not fully committed to him. And for those that didn't think that he was just some sort of weak man would have assumed that he was the one that fathered the child. Because who else would take in such a shameful bride like that and would have blamed him? So this is a shame-on-shame culture. Another commentator had put it this way. It says, if this scenario is still scandalous in our anything-goes-play-by-your-own-rules culture, imagine how it would have been in their anything-does-not-go-abide-by-God's-rules culture. This is a terribly shameful thing. So Joseph has two options now. In order to fulfill the law and cultural expectations... He could do one of two things. The first option was a very public divorce. So it would have been gathering the village together, showing that Mary has been unfaithful in her vows. This would give him the chance to recoup some of the bride price that he has paid. And this would put all of the shame and blame off of him and onto her. That would have been the expected thing for him to do. But the second option was to just write her a certificate of divorce. So she'd be free to marry someone else, if that could even be possible in her state. And it would just be given in front of two or three witnesses. This would spare her shame, but he'd be out the bride price. And he'd always have a cloud over his head of people suspicious of him as to why that divorce happened. And of course, it's a small town. Those things are going to get out anyway. Those are his options. Joseph graciously chooses the second option trying to be as just and as gracious as possible. Reminds you of someone, doesn't it? Reminds you of Christ's heavenly father treated us in the same way, who sent his son to take our shame, our blame, and goes to the cross and carries it away for us. Joseph cannot take away her shame completely, unlike God but he could at least shield her a little bit. And this is what he decides to do. Now, there is a lot at stake in this decision. This is not just any ordinary marriage. All those four empires have been leading up to this. Because if Joseph doesn't marry Mary, Jesus doesn't belong to the, divine, to the Davidic kingship. The line of David goes through Joseph. 
And if Joseph adopts Jesus as his own son, it would be just like as if he had descended from that line biologically. This needs to happen or the prophecy doesn't work. And the Messiah can't be proven. But God leaves no things to chance. Here comes that providence again. This time intervening personally. And he comes to Joseph in a dream. Notice that Joseph has to wait all day for this dream to come. Serving God oftentimes has hardship to it. It's not quick or easy most of the time. But here, God sends an angel to Joseph in a dream. Tells him, Joseph, son of David, note that title. Do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Total control. There's our God. And what happens? Verse 24, when Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. Keener again comments and notes that Joseph is has been asked to believe and do the impossible and shameful. But he does it immediately. He trusts God completely as one who understands that God is in control and is working all things for his good. And here fulfills this prophecy. A thousand years, four empires, and one married couple from Nazareth later. The Messiah appears. God is with us. Here he is working in national historical crises and personal crises. The Messiah had something to say to both of them. God is in control of both of those sides. And this is a comfort to us. I heard a podcast this week, Paul Tripp talking about the sovereignty of God. And he had said something fascinating. He says, just because you don't control it doesn't mean it's not being controlled. It's a hard one for us to swallow, though, but it's a comforting one when we do swallow it. We don't control all these aspects of our life. In fact, we don't control any part of our lives. Yes, we're making real decisions. God uses those things. God's providence is guiding Joseph's real decision to marry Mary to bring about his Messiah. And he's working in all of your lives as well. All these thousands of little moments that he is in total control over. All to bring the culmination of history, which is Christ Now, maybe we don't get to see how God is working in that way. Maybe when we look at Joseph and Mary, we can see what a pivotal moment that theirs was. But if we looked back into our genealogy, not every name that was listed there was famous. Who knows who, what, who and what Aminadab did or Salmon? He's part of the line. And he's working through you, too. And that one day we will get to see God's extraordinary plan all pulled together in a way as if we would say, 
It couldn't have been done any other way. So what do we learn from all of this? What's our takeaway from God being in control of all things? Well, this gives us a tremendous opportunity to be trusting of God. It's one of those things we all say we need to do it more, but how much do we really think about how little we trust? When's the hardest time for you to trust God? For me, it's when hard times come or when I'm asked to do something difficult. And I know I need to go over there and tell that person about Christ. And all of a sudden, my trust in God becomes a little bit less than stellar. I forget that God is controlling all empires and that he's doing good in this moment. Or when we get those life-changing phone calls. It feels like sometimes like God is fading away like a mist. And we have nothing to grab hold of. But that's not true. It's in those moments, national and personal crises, that where we need to trust God the most. Because that's where God seems to move the most. We see these big gaps of time in which things have been going well. It seems that God works the biggest in moments of crises. That means that we can trust him. Of course, the largest crisis that we ever saw was the moment when God's son was nailed to a cross. And Jesus died for our sin. Here, we can imagine those who were standing and watching and thinking about those thousands of years, multiple empires and countless acts of faithfulness all the way through. And then the Messiah just dies. What good can come of that? Every good has come from that. Because we found out that God has power even over death. And as his providence extends even beyond the grave. And that one day he will lead us through that as well. And if you're here today and you've not put your trust in this king of the world, then I would invite you to do so today. To leave behind your sins and your futile attempts to control your own destiny. And instead to surrender your life to Christ. Might you be asked to do hard things? Yes. All of God's followers have had to do hard things. Even those that bore the Messiah had to do hard things and face the shame of their community. But oh, Christ works wonderful things through that. We don't have to be afraid of what God calls us to do. We don't have to look at fear of saying, like, oh, is the church going to survive this? Yes. No empire is going to win the war on Christmas. It's not going to happen. Whether they say happy holidays on the Starbucks cup or not, Christ is still king. Whether Starbucks realizes it or not. And we can go forth with confidence Not only looking at a watching world that seems to be falling apart, but in our own lives which seem to be falling apart more often than not. And instead, look forward to the time when the prophecy of Emmanuel will be fully fulfilled and God lives and reigns on earth with us forever. Christmas is here because God is in control. So you can sing joy to the world because the world and your world is in his hands. 
Let's pray. Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we do praise you for how you rule over everything. You rule over the nations and you rule over us. And I pray that we would draw our comfort, our life from this truth. I pray that you would keep our hearts calm from anxiety as we look at the news or look at our media feeds. But I pray that we would keep our eyes constantly on what is really true, what is realer than reality, but is your promise that you will come to earth again. I pray for those all who are listening, and if there is anyone who can hear my voice who has not come to Christ today, I pray that they would surrender this moment, that they would turn from their sins and put their trust in you, and that they would see and know that you are God, that you are in control, and that you love them. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.